This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 17th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The Cato Institute's new Pandemics in Policy details the federal, state, local, and public health responses needed to give people the most flexibility to deal with the pandemic's potentially dire consequences. In education, policy changes needed should focus on flexibility for parents and giving respect for the individual situations families are facing. Cato's Neil McCluskey explains. You, Carrie McDonald, and I have recorded several podcasts in the last few months sort of about the, in some cases, apoplexy of uh, public school systems, in some cases, just trying to get kids in school and provide education. To the extent state policymakers are thinking seriously about this going forward, what should they be doing to assure that education provided to young people is what it ought to be? Well, I mean, we're in a very difficult position. So everything we talk about in education when it comes to COVID-19, as we talk about many other things, I'm sure, that are affected by COVID-19, first thing we have to say is there's probably not going to be a perfect solution. As long as you have a pandemic, it's going to make things more difficult, and that includes educating people. So the gold standard for most people would still be to get their kids in in person, face-to-face with the teacher, in a classroom, education. The reality is for some people that will be impossible because the concentration of COVID-19 in their school or district may be too great to make it safe. For many people, that option will be intolerable even if there isn't a, an extreme concentration of COVID-19, they will be worried about it for the health of their kids or the health of themselves as parents, or they may have grandparents in the household. And so even though kids seem to be at very low risk of getting a serious case of COVID-19, there are ramifications if they carry it. And so some people say, we don't want to take that chance. And then there are plenty of people who say, well, we want that in-person education, but uh, and that we'll, we'll, we're happy to take the risk. But for many people, it'll just be impossible or unacceptable to do in-person education. What policymakers need to do is try and make sure that there are as many options as possible for families, because what we've learned very clearly under COVID-19 is what we really knew before it, but this has brought it home on a national basis for everybody at the same time. Every family, every child, every person is different, every community is different, so you need to have a multiplicity of options so people can find what works best for them. And so policymakers should say, look, we know there are going to be difficulties. There are plenty of private schools that have opened for the new school year that are doing hybrid or online because that's what's best for those families. But it's not necessarily going to be the best educational product. It's the best balancing of lots of different concerns. And policymakers should say, look, we know there's not going to be a perfect solution. What we want to do is be able to get the best solutions in light of the fact that we're facing a pandemic. And that means ultimately school choice. Uh, That means you should allow private schools to open if they want to, and the way they're held accountable and the way they balance risk is they've got to get enough 
families to come to that school who are willing to pay for in-person education. You should let your public schools make very localized decisions. A state shouldn't tell every district, no, you may not open in person, or yes, you must open in person. They should say, we leave it to the district to make those decisions. And within a district, it could make sense to have different schools make their own decisions because you think of a district like New York City, that's 1.1 million students. Um, that's a very big area and different parts of New York City will be facing different concentrations of COVID-19. So the, the, the primary kind of broad message is you've got to maximize the amount of choice and freedom within the system. Unfortunately, we have been fighting against that, or at least many people have been fighting against having a multiplicity of options for decades. And we're kind of paying the price for that right now. And many parents may not realize that there's been this fight for school choice for decades, but now they realize they, in many cases that they really want it. And it's unfortunate that it's taken us so long before people have discovered that it's important that you as a family have control over where your child's educated. Uh, there are some local school districts throughout the United States that have done their best to accommodate homeschooling, even providing resources to uh, homeschoolers. What can states do to make that easier? Well, so what has always been the problem for homeschoolers, it's always been a problem for private schoolers, is to homeschool, it does take resources. And we have most states, well, no states that I know of, um, we don't let money follow the student. Now, many homeschoolers are concerned about if there were a voucher or something because they would come with rules and regulations, and that's a serious concern. But you can at least allow tax credits for families that homeschool so they can get credits for the expenses of homeschooling, the textbooks they may buy, the science equipment, the cost of going on uh, field trips, although field trips are less of an option uh, since COVID-19, but you can still go to parks and things like that. Uh, they need more of the financial flexibility and what policymakers should do is say, look, we're not going to tell you what to do, but as long as there's just some very basic level of showing that you spent the money on something educational, we're going to let you have a, a credit or even a deduction for those costs. And they should remove any rules and regulations they have about, well, you know, it depends on your state. But in California, they said, look, uh, if you're going to homeschool, you have to be a certified teacher as a uh, or, or it's a private or like a certified private school to be a homeschooler. You want to remove those sorts of regulations that are really serious impediments to homeschooling. Uh, but that's the main thing is just don't sort of punish people who choose something other than public schools by they pay taxes, but then can't take advantage of any of the money they've paid for their own education. Then otherwise get out of the way, equalize uh, the resources, and then minimize the regulation. You note in uh, your chapter for Cato's COVID-19 handbook that the federal role here is simply to end state testing mandates. What does that achieve and what kind of flexibility does that provide? Yeah, Reaching its apogee in the No Child Left Behind Act, which started really in 2002 uh, and uh, was changed in 2015, uh, but starting with the No Child Left Behind, or really reaching its peak, the federal government told states you have to have uniform state standards and uniform state tests, 
and all your schools and, and districts will be held accountable for how students perform on those tests. In 2015, that was reduced somewhat with the Every Student Succeeds Act, which replaced No Child Left Behind. But you still have a requirement that all uh, schools, uh, states and schools have uniform standards and tests. It's just not as many districts will end up being uh, impacted by how they perform on those tests. And ultimately, uh, these are used for accountability, which is hugely problematic when you have a pandemic to say, well, a school or a district didn't do well on these tests. Therefore, we know there's something wrong with that school or district. Uh, it doesn't make sense if that school or district has been crushed by a pandemic. Uh, and so the tests no longer serve the purpose that was already pretty dubious, that you could reduce education to a test score. But now you're trying to say a school is responsible for something that a pandemic really caused. And so the federal government should should waive these requirements. The federal government actually did that in the first round of COVID-19. So in the 2019-2020 school year, they said, okay, you can just apply for a waiver not to give these tests and we'll let you not give them this year. But the Secretary of Education has actually said for this coming year, these tests will be required. Now, this has gone sort of a halfway to what is reasonable. They say the tests will be required, and there's a great question of are they going to give you useful information if they're really just telling you that kids are taking the tests on a computer or they had to, they've been working on a computer, they have to go back into school with weird social distancing to take this exam, and what is the effect of the weird social distancing? So there's a great question of whether these tests will tell you anything useful, and they probably should drop that testing requirement just because it won't tell you much useful. But the secretary said probably the results will not be used for this accountability. If it's not used for accountability, it's not going to tell us much, but at least it isn't going to punish schools for bad results that are not really the fault of the school. It's the fault of the pandemic. So we really need to get away from this whole mindset that education accountability comes from one big standardized test. But it really doesn't make sense to use one big standardized test for accountability when there's a pandemic, you know, across the world, but especially, you know, in your schools and districts. Uh, and so hopefully the federal government, at the very least, doesn't go back to this idea of, no, no, now you're going to have to take this exam again. And if you don't do well, you get punished. Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.